You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. James Elroy is the author of the L.A. Quartet, which includes The Black Dahlia, L.A. Confidential. He's the author of the brand new book, The Enchanters. Thank you for joining me, James. Oh, Rick, it's a pleasure. You know, one of the things that I first encounter in this book is the torrent of language. But as I read it more and more, I realized how carefully put certain words were and the care with which this is all assembled. You started out, you told me, with a 400-page outline for a 450-page book. Tell me, what kind of outline was that? When I was a kid, we did outlines with, you know, Roman numeral one, header, A, and then went down from there. Is it that kind of outline? No. No, it's a narrative outline wherein I describe everything that happens and everything that is thought, because this is a first-person detective novel, and the narrator, Fred Otash, has to let the reader know what he's thinking in order to explain what he does. You know, one of the things, too, I, I found that as I read this, Freddie Otash lives in a world where he's just constantly juiced with drugs. He's noticing millions of details. And as I immerse myself in the prose, I would get up after reading for two hours. My wife would go, are you high? Well, that's a compliment because Freddie O is a drug addict and a brilliant detective, although this is really the first murder case or interlocking conspiracy cases that he's ever solved. He's a strong-armed goon reaching for the stars. Freddie Otash was a, a real person, and he's among many you use in this book. Um, did you ever meet the man, and what did you think of him? I thought he was a sack of shit. I met him in 89. I knew him intermittently until his death in 92. Did you talk to him much, and and how did he become the center of this novel? He came back to me. I had thoughts of him. I wrote 12 years ago a series of outlines and teleplays on contract for various people in Hollywood. I expanded them into three novellas that form the novel Widespread Panic, my, my previous book, which is not in any way meant to refract this book. That book was the comedic, the parodistic, the satirical Fred Otash. This book is the tragic Fred Otash. Now, that's an interesting decision. If we are writing a tragedy, I think he's a very interesting character to choose to let that tragedy play out. Why did you make that choice? He was a known quantity, 
during the summer of 1962, which I decided to tear down, summer of 62 that is, and recreate from the ground up. You know, that's one of the things that's, I think, most interesting about this book. You, I asked you before, and you said you made it all up, and I really like that because it's the story, and it's really strong, and it comes together really beautifully. Um, it reads like history. There's so many d details of people and places. I, did you research this? And no, no. I live in the past. Uh, I'm 75. I was 14 in 1962. I recall it. And I have been doing this for a great many years. And my metier is recreating history to my own specifications. Those specifications must be something. Can you tell us exactly what they are? Because... I I love the recreation of this. It's like we're immersed in the mind of a man who lived through all these things. And that's a really powerful narrative style that just captures the reader in a way that no other form of art can. I think that one of the things this book exemplifies is the power of the reading experience because you as the reader have to do some kind of heavy lifting to, to read this book, but it's incredibly rewarding to do so. So talk about that, telling the story in that way. I'm an obsessive man. I write about obsessive men. They're obsessed with women. They're obsessed with solving crimes. They are obsessed with getting to the bottom of their own twisted and obsessive souls. I want to transfer that obsession to the reader so that they will read my books obsessively. Uh, mission accomplished. Uh, I'd like you to talk about one of the things I think that's very interesting is the, the word choice, in particular of the, the title of the book, Enchanters. Uh, that's an unusual word. It's you know, derived from enchantment, which is much more common, uh, slightly less common, but also is enchantress. Mm -hmm. One of the main characters is Marilyn Monroe, and she certainly qualifies it as an enchantress. And but you don't use the the word very often in the book. And when you do, man, do you does a reader pay attention? Robert Kennedy says enchantment. Natasha Lytas says enchantment. Freddie Otash thinks enchantment. And I disliked Marilyn Monroe. I didn't like her as an actress. Didn't think much of her as a human being. And she is revised to fit my personal likes, dislikes, specifications in this book, but the title is used ironically. All of these people are the bogus gods of the Jive Kennedy era. 
You know, that's something else I was thinking. There's a TV series in a book, American Gods. And I think, you know, the closest we come to it would be the Kennedys in, in Monroe. That's a, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, if I ever heard it in a weird and twisted way. And weird and twisted is part and parcel of this book. So talk about, you know, how Americans form deities and how we worship them. I don't know and I don't care. I don't think much about media. I recall that when John Kennedy was elected president in 1960, the whole world became about this one man. Then I thought about him occasionally. He was the president for a period of time. Then he was assassinated. But as I lived through this particular summer and fall with my own kid agenda of masturbating, watching crime movies on TV, going to crime movies in theaters, and reading a lot of crime books, I started dwelling ever more in the past. Now, I'm a very accomplished novelist, and I decided to write this book about certain real life and wholly created fictional people and set it between April and October of 1962. You know, as I read this book, one of the things I was thinking is it amazing job at recreating those times, but also making us, when we pull out of those pages and look around, you think, well, things ain't changed all that much in 60 years. There are books about the demimond, and the demimond is, to me, the nexus of Hollywood, disorganized crime, organized crime, corrupt cops, honest, straightforward cops, politicians at the local and national level. They comport and they're a private world unto themselves. You know, the, what you do with the, the real characters in the book is so much fun. It's just a blast to read. And I have to say that I never expected that Bobby Kennedy, when we first hear him, he's referred to by a word that I can't use on the radio, but as we see him through the book and as Freddie experiences him through the book, he is just a hoot to read about. And I think that that's one of the things that makes a book fun is that I know when I read, pick up this book, whatever page I turn to, there's going to be a situation or a character or somebody doing something that I'm just going to go, wow, that is amazingly great and fun to read about. I admired Robert Kennedy very much. I didn't think very much about the two other brothers, of the two other brothers. As I stated, I disliked Marilyn Monroe as an actress and as a woman. Robert Kennedy was funny. John F. Kennedy was funny. Freddie Otash is funny. And with these men, the key to their humor lies in disparagement. <laughs> and they can go for the throat of any, ironically, 
broadly, bodily, of any other human being alive. There's a lot of funny, profane people in this book and a lot of funny situations. And I like to move, 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 move a book. It, this book certainly moves really fast. And one of the things I thought was, was really interesting about it was how poignant you could be at, just at the turn of a dime with Freddie, especially when Freddie's talking about the women he likes. Yeah. And this takes a while to, for it to happen, but once it happens, it's you know just a, an amazingly sweet aspect of a book that you would do not you, you've got a very sweet. good rick you got a very good understanding of this book yeah he's a fool for women i'm a fool for women and he's indiscriminately in love with two entirely inappropriate women who will cause him nothing but grief and leave him in the lurch. You know, um, one of the things, too, that I thought about as I read this book was, you know, the, the way it's written. To me, this strikes me as, you know, as a detective novel, this is absolutely exemplary of the true power of the detective novel, which is that the detective can talk to kings and the trashmen with equal aplomb and equal power. He's an equal everywhere up and down the social ladder. And nowhere is that more apparent in this book when Freddie will talk with the absolute lowest scum of the earth and with, you know, President Kennedy. <laughs> it's a it, it's true. Keep in mind that his ace in the hole is extortion and the threat of physical violence. So he's a very bad detective, but an effective detective in that way. He's not a sadist. He's not a psychopath. He doesn't hurt people for kicks, but he's out to kick ass and he's out to figure some things out in this book. You know, I, early on in the book, you introduced the man camera. Yeah. And I think that's such a great concept. Um, it's a really great way to deal with the kind of Holmes, Sherlock Holmesian notion of somebody who notices all the details. And he, Freddie says, uses the word a couple of times again, very sparingly, eidetic. So we're thinking that, you know, he's got something like a photographic memory. It's a photographic memory that's probably scrambled a bit by drinking 151 rum with powdered benzedrine in it, which he calls yeah. jungle juice. Yeah, yeah. I felt my eyeballs frying as I read this book constantly. Well, we're in Santa Cruz, and Santa Cruz doesn't help. I... Man Camera goes all the way back to my 1988 novel, The Big Nowhere. A sheriff's deputy, a detective named Danny Upshaw, employs it. I, there is an invented German homicide detective criminologist named Hans Maslick, who's also a Nazi brown shirt in Berlin, in the 20s. And he is Freddy's... Mastero in this case because Freddie has read the books. 
that Hans Maslick, who's entirely fictional, wrote. You know, too, I I thought of this book as the perfect balancing act between uh, being told by a Sherlock Holmes obsessed with detail and memorizing them with him, and on the other hand, uh, you know, the the complete. Gonzo Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, this is the book. If you mix the genes of those two writers, you would get Freddie O'Tash's voice in this book. And I thought, no, because I I hate Hunter S. Thompson. I hated William S. Burroughs, and I hate Charles Bukowski. Uh, I I hate people who glorify drug use. I hate that reflexive anti-authoritarianism. The district attorney of Santa Cruz will introduce me tonight. A lot of my cop buddies here in Santa Cruz and my best friend Glenn Martin, who's a retired LAPD man, will be here tonight. I am steadfastly on the side of the cops. So I would be locking up. And William S. Burroughs, of course, was a murderer. Yeah, he murdered his wife trying to shoot an apple off her head and in a replication of William Tell. And they're not guys that I emulate in any way, and I hate beatniks, too. And I was at City Lights up in San Francisco last night. I can't believe that I did a bookstore event there. But such is book selling, and I had a very good time and a very good turnout with a lot of very good readers there. I'm an original. I can't say that anyone other than Dashiell Hammett inspired me. Dashiell Hammett and I, he is the artistic creator of the American Hardball Canon. He's their first, his first novel, Red Harvest. The, uh, he is the Alpha and I am the Omega. He is the father, I am the son. He was born in 1894 and died in 1961. I was born in 1948 and I'm still alive. It's him and it's me, but he burned out very early. Booze bad women. I think he was weak. He was a communist. It was the God that failed. He never renounced his, you know, his horrid belief. He would not testify at the HUAC hearings. I believe that he should have. Uh, I love the blacklist. I don't hate the blacklist. I'm not on the side of the Hollywood Reds. I'm on the side of HUAC, just to get a few things straight there. But he wrote five books, five novels, and a bunch of short stories. I don't even read the short stories. I haven't read most of them. There is Red Harvest, The Maltese Falcon, and The Glass Key. The Dane Curse and The Thin Man are not much. I'm better than Hammett. I'm exponentially better than Raymond Chandler, you know, who is a wanker. And I've written 23 books and still going strong at 75. Uh, Yeah, well, that was a discourse, but there's him and there's me. 
Now, uh, I I think that you know in your hands the, 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 the though this has all the aspects of a mystery genre. No, it, it has crimes and there are criminals and there are cops. Um, and in a sense, it's actually really, I suppose, of the subgenre, police procedural. But you can just toss those away because I think it's really a, a novel of history and a look at all the planes of American society in 1962 where, where any one person might be in America in that time. You will find a character like that in this book. Um, so talk about just um, trying to create a sense of of not mystery or but what America is. Of course, it's there. Of course, I want to make the point, but I write about the demimonde in a specialized world. It's all movie people. It's all criminals. It's all dope dealers. It's all call girls. It's all homosexuals. It's all corrupt and uncorrupt and variously corrupt politicians. I'm not interested in the least in domestic life, in families. It's a bore. I dislike comedy. I dislike science fiction. I dislike the whole notion of the American family as sacrosanct. I think it's a good organizing principle for society. This is a detective novel. It's a popular novel. It's a populist novel. It's a modernist novel in that it gives us the world as it seeks to reinvent itself again. I write in a piece that was published online in Lit Hub that I felt like 1920s Berlin with the wild mix of Nazis and Marxist and Bauhaus and modernism ascendant fell on my head. It's a modernist book. It's a popular book. It's populist in the manner of books I was reading at that time, 1962. What were you reading? The cheesy novels of Harold Robbins, The Carpetbaggers, The Inheritors, Irving Wallace, The Chapman Report, Jacqueline Suzanne, The Valley of the Dolls, and The Love Machine, and a lot of cheesy semi-pornographic paperbacks that I got at a place in Hollywood called Crown Liquor. The stewardesses, the call girls, the gynecologists, the world rapers and books like that. This book is meant to grab you, Rick, by the nuts, not let you go. It's meant to break your heart. It's meant to entertain you. And it's meant to tell you that concurrently Americans are magnificent and full of shit. You know, you mentioned cheesy novels off the spin rack at a liquor store. Yeah. I went to a, I bought a 
fair number of novels off that same rack, apparently. And there's a scene in here where Freddie has in, in bed with one of the women that he likes, and she's holding up the sheet to herself to shield herself, mm-hmm. and it slips down. And all I could think of was, that is exactly like the kind of thing you would see on a paperback in a spin rack in 1972 or so, when I would be looking at spin racks. And I thought well, that must have been a deliberate creation. This, the there's no actual sex scenes in this book. No. There are lead-in scenes and there are post-coital scenes, and there's a lot of talk. I despise explicit sex scenes in literature. I do not want to invade the character's privacy. I, I hate pornography. I hate prurience. I'm a Christian. I'm a Puritan at heart. And I'm a sinner, as we all are. The world is a fallen place. We, all human beings, are cut down the middle in our propensity for sin and our desire for redemption. And Freddie Otash was a Christian and is a Christian in this book. The only time Freddie ever got pissed off at me, I said to him, because he is, was Lebanese-American, first-generation American, born in Methuen, Massachusetts. His parents emigrated from Lebanon. I said, hey, Freddie, are you a Muslim? He said, you motherfucker, I'm just as much a Christian white man as you are. And I said, okay, point taken, Freddie. Uh, and that's that. You'll note that Freddie... He hears something truly horrific, he crosses himself. Even the rather corrupt Motel Mike Bayless, who is a Christian, crosses himself. There are Catholics in this book. There are Lebanese Coptic Christians. Robert F. Kennedy was a Christian. There's lots of Jews in this book. You might have noticed there uh, who else? J. Miller Levy, the great prosecutor, man who put 11 people in the gas chamber. He sunk a lot of killers, put their, put their low-life asses in the green room. The Adlin brothers are Jewish. Who else? There's just a shitload of Jewish. And you know, you know what it says in the Old Testament. The Jews are God's chosen people. I believe that. So it's very much a theocratic book. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's an amazing, and it's really true. I, I, go go I, through I, the book and, and, and call it the Jewish no, names. You're, you're exactly right, you know, and, and I had noticed that, but I hadn't thought of it in terms of being a theocratic book, which is a really interesting take. Now, one of the things I really love about this is that it's been part of the it spins around the filming of Cleopatra. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Now, okay, Rick, how old are you? I am 66, so I was five years old at that okay, time. Okay, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm nine years older than you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you're born in 57? Yeah. Yeah. What, what month? February. Okay, you're about six months older than my wife. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I remember a lot of these times, too. I, I'm... 
what I mainly remember was when RFK was killed. Yeah. My parents wanted to, you know, keep the, the newspapers for the headlines. Right. And I think they might have still had the headline, the papers from uh, JFK's uh, killing as well. Yeah. But, you know, so talk about, um, you know, just that kind of, you have a lot of knowledge and not a lot of like of Hollywood. I have to say one of the things I absolutely loved about your website, which may have not been messed with them for a while, but I, when you have the, the thing about the movies from your books and you have a picture of American Confidential and you say, well, it's a pretty good movie and I would agree. And then you have two other ones. You just say one word, flee. <laughs> well, there's movies you want to see. There's movies you want to flee. <laughs> I've since turned on L.A. Confidential, but that's okay. God bless. I love a good movie. I haven't seen many in my lifetime. And uh, they give you money for nothing because you've already written the book. And you get a movie option. Wow, they're giving you some dough for nothing. So I'll always take the dough. God bless them. Uh, that's true. But there's a lot of funny stuff pertaining to Cleopatra and the fact that it almost sunk 20th Century Fox in this book. And I play Elizabeth Taylor and her marriage to Eddie Fisher and her forthcoming nuptials to Richard Burton for laughs. And I bring in Bobolinsky. It's hilarious. Who, yeah, he was a pitcher for the LA Angels who threw a no-hitter in May of 62. And when this book is in its early throes and its early chapters, and he's pals with Eddie Fisher, soon to get the boot by Liz Taylor. And I didn't particularly like Liz Taylor either, nor did I like Daryl F. Zanuck, the boss man at 20th Century Fox. So Freddie humiliates him and brutalizes him. This is about the humor and disparagement, this book. It's. I have to say that it's definitely laugh out loud funny in many places, especially. You know that I think there's a real art in using blue language mm -hmm. to use just enough, and to to have it come up so that it's funny but not numbing, and and that it's something I think you're very careful with in this book. It's very true, and and in all my books, there's some books I dislike. I'm mean, excuse me, movies, TV shows. I just like that people are gaga over The Wire is one of them with the endless profanity and the whole, although he's grown up, uh, David Mamet considerably, politically especially, but the, the David Simon homicide life on the streets, all the squadron talk, NYPD blue, yeah, I hate it. I hate it. I, I, I like something more decorous. Yeah, I, I only watch TV when I just no longer need, I'm able to think. <laughs> I think yeah, it's good yeah. for to, to keep yeah. your brain, like, you know, if, when you want, need to stay awake so you'll sleep the proper amount that night. Right, right. But yeah. I, I, it's interesting, too, that, um, you know, so many books they, they choose to make movies and I'm guessing that this is nowhere near a movie makeable in any way just because yeah. so much of it's internal that's right 
it's yes, it's too much of its internal to I think successfully make it a new movie, which doesn't mean some people won't come in and option the book. Well, there checks clear. Yay yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what I think. But yeah. Now, um. How did this become part of the L.A. Quartet so that it's now the L.A. Quintet, the second? The second L.A. Quartet, which is published books, Perfidia, set the month of Pearl Harbor, and this storm, largely connected narratively, they cover the day before Pearl Harbor to May of 1942. They were to be the second L.A. Quartet, or at least the half of it. Midway through, I was tired, exhausted, in fact, with L.A. during World War II, and decided to write The Enchanters. The next three books will comprise a micro-history of L.A. during the year 1962. So The Enchanters is the third book in the L.A. Quartet. There'll be two more. Now, one of the things uh, that interests me is that, you know, you you have compared your work and others have compared it to um, War and Peace. Uh-huh. And I never read it, but yeah. So, well, talk about that kind of, you know, first off, um, why L.A.? Why choose L.A.? Because I'm focus? from there. Okay. Yeah, that's easy. All right. Well, one thing I must say is I spent 30 years of my life in L.A. And it's... Where'd you live? Oh, let's see. I lived in Covina. Okay. I lived in Brea. I lived in Irvine. I lived in Redondo Beach. I lived in Newport Beach. I lived in Costa Mesa, Santa Ana, and Garden Grove. Okay. Okay. In Anaheim, too. Yeah, I lived yeah. just up the street from Disneyland. That was a memorable okay. stretch of, of life. I grew up in the city. I was born on Wilshire Boulevard. Oh, really? I grew up on the south edge of Hollywood and adjoining the Wilshire District. So, And I'm nine years older than you, so it's a different L.A. I cannot think of L.A. epigrammatically. I am not a culture critic. I do not have a political axe to grind like the recently late... You know, certainly great when it pertained to his critique of Los Angeles writer Mike Davis. Mike Davis, I loved his work. I didn't realize he passed. He, he, yeah, was, he oh, he got up awesome. He went in August. Fantastic he hated me. Writer. Called me a fascist, racist, homophobe, anti-Semite. I don't know what else. You name it. Uh, but that's okay. God bless him. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm here. He's not. Uh, and. I'm from L.A. He was from Fontana. He was way out in the Inland Empire. I'm from L.A., though. I'm from the city. He was two years older than me. And rest in peace, Mike. I never met him. Yeah, I wouldn't know him if he bit me. But I don't think of L.A. critically because I'm from there. And I think in, liter in terms of literary genres, and I think in terms of the Hollywood novel, and I think that The Enchanters is a shit-kicking, hard-charging Hollywood novel on a par with Bud Schulberg's two great novels, What Makes Sammy Run and The Disenchanted. <laughs> Note that it has enchanted in the world. 
in the word, uh, and Nathaniel West, the day of a locust. Joan Didion's Played As It Lays, Evelyn Waugh's great book, The Loved One. This, this is on a par. Well, those are all wonderful books, and I would have to say, yeah, it's it, it, it's right in the ballpark in terms of the genre and the quality of writing and also the, the quality of the reading experience. And that's what I think is very important is it's important to tell a story. It's not. It's one thing to just have a great voice and, and you'd be able to, you know, riff and extemporize in the way it feels like this is writing. But it's another thing to have underneath that a strong narrative engine story of people and characters moving through events and places. Yes, and and conflict. And conflict. Yeah. So talk about architecting that underneath Freddie's voice, which is, you know, it doesn't, in a sense, somebody who is addicted to drugs and obsessed and also, you know, a perfect example of the male, in my mind, Men at 16 immediately move into like a Schrodinger's cat box. And any one moment, we might be acting like a 16-year-old, you know, guy just running around like crazy. Or you might slip to the other side. 85-year-old man, I know everything. Shut the hell up. (laughs) And I think that Freddie's a good example of that. Here's a quote for you, Rick, about men. And it's from the late, great jurist critic David T. Bazelon. And it, of course, I wasn't born when Bazelon wrote this, but he's talking about Hammett. The core of Hammett's art is his vision of the masculine figure in American society. He is primarily a job holder. He goes at his job with a bloodthirsty determination which proceeds from an unwillingness to go beyond it. This relationship to the job is perhaps typically American. The idea of doing or not doing a job competently has replaced the whole larger issue of good and evil. This book, more than any of my books that preceded are about that type of male that the late Freddie Otash embodies. If you look at his two relationships in the book, Patricia Kennedy Lawford and the actress Lois Nettleton, who was a, a big deal to me throughout my youth and early adulthood. There's a current of violence but with, with, in the relationships emanating from the women, not emanating from Otesh. You know, I, that's one of the things I thought, too, that in this book, really, the finish of this book was really beautiful, I thought. It was uh, it just, just a God joy to you. read. If this book doesn't break your heart in the ending. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because on one hand, you know, it has, you know, that, you know, it's going to bring a tear to your eye, but throughout the book, you know, Freddie Otash is a flamethrower. Yeah. And he's bouncing around, and whoever gets in his way is going to get burned. Yeah, yeah. So talk about, you know, balancing those two issues 
as a, you know, as a, both as a writer and, you know, just as a human being, you know, you got somebody who's going to burn you, who's, you know, a, a man turned up to 11, but also he is, has a tender heart that knows how to love. That, that, that tries to love and the two women that he loves, I won't talk about what happens to them in the book, Natasha Lytas and Lowell Farr are women that he has unconsummated relationships with and really barely knows and his, their sources of information to him. And again, it's the demimond who is what is Freddie Otash's specific demimon there? It's bisexual call girls like Jeannie Carmen and Lila Leeds. They're also bait girls. It's the career criminal bait girl Gwen Perla. It's the homosexual film actor, Roddy McDowell. And you have so much fun with him in the novel. Oh, he's got all the best <laughs> lines in the, in the whole damn book. <laughs> and some of his cop buddies and his two goons, Nasty Nat Denkins, who is the, the disc jockey at an all-jazz station in South Central L.A., and Phil Irwin. And they're his people, such as they are. And I wouldn't call his relationship with these people wholesome by a long shot, but I wouldn't call them bad folk either. You know, and that's the thing about this book, is that, in a sense, when we look at pretty much any character in this book, you think, oh my God, I wouldn't want to know. I have to deal with them ever in my life. It would be better. On the other hand, they're fascinating characters and we're really drawn and compelled to read about them. Talk about creating characters who are at once unpleasant but also very compelling and likable. I mean, even I'll give you an example. Dee Dee Grenier, oh, who's yeah. a lesbian golf pro. I mean, she's hard as nails and tough and has some great lines here in the book. And without revealing her import to the book, she's funny as shit. She only has a couple of scenes, but they're extended scenes, and she's funny as shit. And if a person is funny as shit, they will take you a long way. As long as this book. Thank you so much for your time. I've been speaking with James Elroy. His new book is The Enchanters, and he is among them. He is an enchanter. He will hypnotize you with 450 pages of unputdownable prose. Thank yeah. you for joining me, James. Thank you, Rick.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.